Today's sermon text comes from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 18 through 16. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. We are quite a ways through our long journey through the entire Bible. If you're visiting or new with us, recently we've been working our way through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, pretty much one book at a time, trying to cover the whole theme so that you can see as we move through it quickly, what is the theme of the whole Bible? What's the story? What's it pointing to? Who are the characters? What are we getting at so that you and your life can be drawn into its story. So today we're in the book of James, and then we're going to cover two Peters in one next week, three Johns, one Jude, and a Revelation, and then it will be Easter. And that will be quite an accomplishment that we made through all together, the whole Bible. Before we jump into James, let's bow our heads and ask God, in our humility, to reveal his will to us through this book. God, James calls us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. But before we can be a doer, we do need to be a hearer. And before we can be a hearer, we need to humble ourselves, bow our heads, put away every distraction, And have our hearts softened, our eyes opened, our ears opened. Illuminate our souls, God, that we can see truth from your word. And we can be transformed by it. And we can be made into the doers that James calls us to be. We can only do this. Not because of anything good in us, but because your son has entered into our blindness, into our deafness, into the hard-heartedness of this world, and he is broken through by his death and resurrection. Show us how that gospel and his spirit empowers us to be faithful doers of his word. Amen. I 
love coffee. I know many of you are marveling at that statement, but it is true. I really do love coffee. I know that there are different flavors of coffee that come from different countries. And I know that how you roast the coffee beans can also change the flavor of your coffee. I also know that how you grind the beans and how long you steep the grounds in Water and how hot the water is can change the temperature of the coffee or the the taste of the coffee. (laughs) Temperature, too. That's that's true. We have a coffee machine at home, a nice coffee bar with different flavors of coffee available for you to enjoy when you come visit us because we know how great coffee is. Yes, I really do love coffee. I just can't stand the taste. Or the smell, really. I never drink the stuff, actually. Anytime someone offers me coffee, I quickly reject that in favor of something better like milk or juice or even water. It boggles my mind why anyone would add coffee flavor to something perfectly delicious like like ice cream. It's so good already. If I ever have a meeting with somebody, with one of you in a coffee shop, after we're done, I can't wait to go home and change my clothes so I don't smell like coffee the rest of the day. But I assure you, I really do love coffee. That sounds incredibly ridiculous, inconsistent. How can I say that I love coffee, yet I don't do the obvious thing that coffee drinkers do, right? You know that I don't love coffee. Likewise, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is looking around local churches who say they love Jesus, and yet he's not seeing them do the actual things, the obvious things that Jesus lovers should be doing. He walks into a church kind of like a secret shopper. Nobody knows what he's up to. And he observes the behaviors of the people and he hears them preaching about loving Jesus and how Jesus loves all of his people. But in the back, there's people whispering negative things about others in the congregation. He sees them partake in communion, declaring we are a unified body. And he looks around and he sees pockets of people as they separate themselves by interest in the world and and social status. He hears them receive a benediction. Go into the world covered by the righteousness of Christ. And instead, he sees them bringing the unrighteousness of the world into the presence of Christ. How can this be? So he writes to them to say, if you believe in Jesus, then act like it. Or show your faith by your works. Show your faith by your works. Look, salvation isn't just getting a free pass for your sins so someday, long into the future, after I'm done living life the way I want to, then I get to go to heaven. No, salvation is God pouring out his wisdom into your life right now so that you can live like Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at the book of James, the whole thing, and see how he makes that point. We're going to start right here in our text in chapter 2 and work outwards towards the edges. 
In chapter 2, we will see first why faith works. James is going to argue from the lives of Abraham and Rahab that faith has always produced obedience. It's not an option. It's not a second-tier Christianity. These things go together. And then, as we work our way out, we'll summarize the proverbial wisdom of this entire book showing how faith works by the instrument, how it works in your life, what it should look like. If I say that I love coffee, you would expect, did I just say coffee, Phil? (laughs) If I say that I love coffee, then you would expect me to drink the stuff. And if you say you love Jesus, well, your life should align with the things that James says here in this book. Finally, we'll finish looking at where faith works. At the beginning and the end of the book, he kind of bookends the whole thing, showing us that conflict, trial, suffering are the context for showing a supernatural goodness at work in you. That's different from the ordinary goodness you see around the world. So to start this call to working faith, we're going to jump back into our text in chapter 2 and first see why faith works. Because the power of God is at work through his word and not mine. Let's just read that text again. Chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So four times in this text, James emphasizes that faith and works go together in the life of a true believer. He calls believers to what John Piper calls the obedience of faith. In a lot of our minds, those things don't go together. But James wants us to see, don't just tell me you believe in Jesus. Get busy showing me your faith. This Strong emphasis on works and obedience just doesn't feel quite right to many of us. It feels out of place in the New Testament, especially as we just have flown through all these letters from Paul, where he is telling us, you are saved by grace, through faith, apart from works. There's nothing you can do to earn God's salvation. So what is James saying? It's it's not that we're misreading him here. It's clear from this section that faith is accompanied with works. And in verse 18, 20, 24, 26, all of these things saying faith and works go hand in hand. And so now James is going to give us some examples mixed in with these statements. Three examples, one negative to prove 
how faith without works is useless, and then two positive. First, in verse 19, he gives the example of demons. Demons believe. Interesting. The word believe means trust. They have faith. But they shudder. They tremble. They they fear their destruction. They flee from the presence of God. They don't obey him. They don't want to be near him. But they do have some knowledge of God. And James wants us to understand knowledge of God and of his work and of his plans and promises doesn't mean you actually believe him. You can show me how great your theology is. Unfold before me the richness of your prayer life. Show me how obedient your children are and they sit in a nice row in church. But if you don't, if you have the same faith, if you don't have the same faith that James is laying out here, then your faith is no different than the demons. But from a positive perspective, James then cites the examples of Abraham and Rahab. What's really interesting about this citation is that James uses the exact same thing, same phrase that Paul uses in Romans to say what seems to be the exact opposite thing. Paul argues that Abraham simply believed God without doing a thing and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a pretty shady character. He was an idol worshiper in the land of Ur. He did a lot of really questionable, terrible things in his life. So what Paul is arguing is that Abraham was saved despite all of those bad things. All he had to do was believe God's promises and he was saved. He was justified simply by faith, by trusting God's promises. He did some terrible things, but he trusted God would take care of his sin problem. But now James takes the same phrase and he's just taking it a little bit further. How do you know that Abraham was justified? How do you know he had faith? Well, because he acted in accordance with that faith. He did the obvious thing. I say I love coffee and so I drink coffee. Abraham says he believes God's promise, so he acts in accordance with it. Abraham, God told Abraham he was going to have a son in his old age. And so what do you think he did to believe that promise? He turned on some Barry White and had some alone time with his wife. And he believed that son was going to give birth to many more children and there would be a great nation born from Abraham. So that when God came and said, I need you to sacrifice that boy. He believed the promise. He knew that boy had to live somehow. He knew that somehow God was going to keep him alive or bring him back to life. And so he obeyed. I trust the promise. So I will obey. It was his obedience that proved he really loved God. Likewise, Rahab, a prostitute. She believed that God was going to tear down Jericho and give the land to the Israelites and make them a flourishing people in that land. She wanted to be part of that promise. She wanted to be done with her life, her old life, her prostitution, this wicked city. She was ready to be done with it. So she protected the messengers leading to the destruction of her own home. 
And it was her trust in God's promises that made it so easy to give up all of that, proving her faith was genuine. So when James says we're justified by works, he doesn't mean God saves us based on what we do, based on our own goodness, because Abraham and Rahab were not good people. He says we are saved only by God's work to keep his promises. We believe the promises, and then we are saved, and then we do what God says. That's what Paul means. We believe we're saved, but James takes it further. If we are saved, we prove our faith with behavior that lines up with God's promises. True faith will always, always be accompanied by faithful work. The key is true faith. Is it real? Is it wholehearted trust in God's promises? Is it belief in God's goodness toward me even when evil surrounds me? Do I believe that God can keep his promises? Only true faith produces these works. James is so, but with that emphasis... It seems odd to read this book and wonder why in the world is he so heavy on these works? Where is, if faith is so vital, why are you talking so much about works and not faith, James? He's so heavy on works and apparently light on grace that it even made Martin Luther question whether this book should be in the Bible. Martin Luther got to studying this guy all about justification by faith through Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, uh, I'm not seeing Jesus' work or death or resurrection or atonement anywhere in this book. But James is not so much pointing us to the cross, but away from ourselves. That doesn't mean the gospel is not present. James's goal is to humble us, to show us we can't do anything this book calls us to. Nobody has a pure religion. Nobody can tame your tongue. You're not able to control your behavior and live righteously. You don't have the means to lift up the poor and needy out of their trouble. But verse 26 here says at the end, A body apart from the spirit is dead, suggesting that your life filled with the spirit is alive. And if the spirit is in you, then your faith will produce Christ-like work. James says in chapter 4, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. All you need to do is recognize your inability. Humble yourself before God. Lay yourself out before him and say, I can't do these things, but I want to. I want to honor you. You look to heaven and ask him. And chapter 1 verse 5 says, God delights to give generously without reproach to those who ask. This is where faith comes in. Do you trust that God will Bring his spirit's work into your life. God gives generously. He is gracious. He doesn't look at your past disobedience, your failure to determine if you get to receive his blessings or not. You just have to humbly admit you can't accomplish them, but he will for you. 
This is the gospel in the book of James. You can't do it. But Jesus did. And he took the punishment that you deserve because you could not. And he rose from the dead so that he could pour out his spirit on you. Put his spirit in you so you could live with this wisdom. The book of Proverbs was all about this. The way that wisdom had created the world and God put wisdom into the world. Now James is saying there's a new creation in Christ. And you can have that wisdom that created the world when you put your faith in Jesus. If you truly believe that, then that spirit will be at work in you so that your faith in Jesus will cause you to be like Jesus, faithfully obedient. The question at this point then is, what does that faithful obedience look like? It's not just doing nice things. Your neighbors, your coworkers, they can all do some really nice things. Faithful obedience looks different. And James lays out in this book, for us how faith works, how it works through your weakness so that you can show off Christ's power in your life. And the way James, the book of James arranges all of these Proverbs is very much like the book of Proverbs. Many people refer to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's kind of just this collection of, of short, pithy statements or very short stories that are supposed to model for you faithful obedience. And as I was looking at them, I kind of was able to categorize them into three kinds of wisdom, general categories of wisdom that he promotes. He, he has an idea of righteous living. Your personal life should reflect God's holiness and harmonious relationships, how you get along with one another, and then generous words. He says a lot about the power of your tongue. In this first category of righteous living, you can see it in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. It says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So the wisdom that most of the world that we naturally live by produces jealousy, selfishness, arguing, covetousness, discontentment, all kinds of worldly, fleshly passions. And the source of all these is demonic. Satan is constantly trying to get you to live by your own wisdom, to keep your eyes off of God. He will do everything he can to keep you being yourself to keep you from or to help you accomplish your dreams to build your career so that you can build yourself up puff yourself up in your accomplishments instead of humbling yourself before God all these things will feel good you'll justify it as wise in the world oh i'm just so shrewd with money not like those other people the fruit He says of this kind of wisdom is disorder in every vile practice. However, God's wisdom from above produces a different kind of fruit. It's self-control, self-denial, generosity, humility, servanthood, holding your time and possessions lightly, willing to share, not thinking highly of yourselves, but finding others to lift up. 
This will be the obvious fruit of someone who has trusted in Jesus because that was the life of Jesus himself. If Jesus is living in you, then you will bear his righteous fruit. Another category of James Proverbs is related to harmonious relationships. James says in chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This is a big statement here. This is incredible. The gospel has done something amazing. It has taken people who are social enemies, people of different classes, who view the world differently from different experiences, who have different interests, and it puts us all together to share in the riches of Christ together by faith. That is an amazing work of God, that we would be unified as one. This pursuing sacrificial unity with one another is one of the primary ways you show that your faith is genuine. You're willing to do what it takes, whatever it takes to pursue others in the room to say, I want to delight in you. I want to be a partner with you. If you truly believe that every other person in this room who has surrendered their life to Christ is an equal partner in the gospel, is a brother and sister in the same eternal family, then you will reorganize your entire life to share this treasure with one another. You'll hold loosely to your own perspective and eagerly want to get to know others because you want to hear how God's working through them. You'll use your own resources and skills to be a blessing to others who don't have those blessings. Because at the end of the day, at the end of this day, I want to love each one of you more than I did when the sun rose. I don't want you to experience that as well. This is the wisdom of Christ at work in you. Everything Jesus did was in order to gather to himself a unified people who get to share in the blessings he earned through his perfect obedience. And if you have true faith, you will do the same. This last category of James's Proverbs focuses on the power of the tongue, calling us to be generous with our words. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Be careful with your words. Your words are like a bridle that can turn and steer a mighty workhorse. Your words are a tiny rudder that can guide a giant ship through a raging sea. Your words are a flame that can bring light and warmth to a brother or sister, but can also set a forest on fire. 
Your words are powerful. And the closer we get to one another, the more you will see how powerful your words are for good or for harm. Your words this week have built up my family as we weep and grieve the loss of another son. But your words have been so encouraging to put our eyes back on Jesus. Your words also have the ability to tear apart an entire church. We all agree in our church covenant that we will abstain from gossip. We will always go to others with conflicts and disagreements in order to overcome those and restore peace. But gossip is just the the waters our culture swims in and we do it without even realizing it. We'll go and, and just kind of quietly drop a little hint of our dissatisfaction, fishing to see if anyone else is dissatisfied so they can join us in our frustration. We say that we need to go vent to someone or seek counsel from a neutral party. But all we're doing is inviting that person to drink the bitter poison of doubt and blame. Even when we do go to people to talk to them and bring out our concerns, we only do so to show how right we are with a list of wrongdoings to accuse and to judge instead of to offer grace and seek unity. We use our words to tear and burn down instead of God's words to build up life. Our words are powerful. Because we were made in the image of the God who created and sustained this world by his words. He has given you his authority to use his words to build his new creation. All Adam had to do in the Garden of Eden to banish Satan was to repeat God's words back to him. And he couldn't do it. We will regularly face all kinds of situations where Satan whispers doubts and discouragements into our ears, tempting us to accuse and blame, doubt and divide. And we must likewise defeat those doubts with God's words. Oftentimes when someone is suffering and we want to know, how can I help? What should I say? I feel so weak and at a loss of what to do. We'll say, I'm so sorry. Words just, there are no words. But that's not true. There are words. There's a treasure chest full of words for every situation. The problem isn't that there are no words. The problem is we don't know them. We don't listen to them. In our fears, in our pains, we cover our ears and run from them. Which is why James says, be in chapter one, we must be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to act. If we're going to employ God's powerful words in our lives, we must be careful to listen to them and wrestle with them, meditate on them. And then don't just be a hearer, be a doer and be a speaker. Open your lips and let God's words recreate life all around you and to unify the body of Christ into a new humanity. James writes this book to encourage us To examine our words. What is the fruit of your words? The fruit of words from a false faith is blame, doubt, fear, division. Just like it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. 
But the fruit of words from true faith is unity, blessing, courage, contentment, hope, and praise. If only we knew the power of God's words available to us. We would turn our worlds upside down. Because this world is a really hard place for a Christian to endure. But this is where faith works. James is giving us wisdom to navigate this difficult world and grow stronger through it. So he tells us at the beginning and the end, the the opening and the closing of his book, where faith works. He explains suffering. He says at the beginning in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As all of you know, I've become quite familiar with trials and tragedy. Suffering, sadly, has become a close friend. For most of my life, however... Two-thirds of my life, things went really well for me. I tried as hard as I could to avoid risk and difficulty and conflict and pain. And sadly, though I thought it would make me more comfortable, I remained quite immature because of it. James is telling us that the way our faith matures is through all of these difficulties. These difficulties humble us. They make us weak. They they make us less dependent upon ourselves. So our only option is to look up and see God pouring out his mercy and his grace and his wisdom on us. And it's through these difficult moments that our faith is proved to be genuine. So to finish up and prepare us for communion and take a look at first Corinthians chapter 11. Paul here, when he's talking about communion is encouraging us toward unity. Communion is a way of saying we are unified. You can't take the body and blood of Christ and be divided amongst one another and be frustrated with one another to have disagreements, exalting worldliness, We must be unified. But in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says this really weird thing. There must be factions among you, division among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What? Be unified. There must be divisions. What are you talking about? Why would he say it's necessary to be division in the church when he's talking about unity? What Paul here and James in his letter are trying to tell us is that conflict and disagreement and difficulty and suffering and trial are all the context where faith works. It's where your faith is proved to be genuine. If you're suffering in the face of death, You get to show everybody that your hope is in eternal life with Christ. If you have disagreement or conflict with another person in the church, you reveal your hope in the gospel, your faith in the gospel, by your confidence in approaching that person and knowing that the Spirit of God is going to unify you 
and strengthen your relationship through that hard conversation. If great temptation befalls you, you confess to a brother or sister, trusting that they will bring the power of God's word to your heart and help you find victory. A community of broken saints is where you most clearly show your faith by your works. If you're coming into church, if you're visiting us trying to figure out if this is a place for you, and you are coming here thinking that here is where you will get what you need, then you'll be disappointed. You're going to see all the conflicts that we have and the trials we face as proof that this isn't the place. By running from conflict and avoiding risk, however, you're missing out on the power of the gospel at work among us. On these opportunities to show our faith by our works. But if you show up ready to put your faith to work, you're going to see all of these difficulties, all of these trials and disagreements as an opportunity to press deeper and watch God pour out his generous grace, his abundant wisdom to grow us into maturity. James is telling us, embrace the difficulty as a test of the genuineness of your faith. Take the mirror of this letter from James and hold it up to your life to examine whether your profession of faith in the gospel is consistent with the spirit-filled life of Christ. If you look at the mirror and you recognize your religion isn't pure, then get on your face, humble yourself, confess it, and look to the heavens and ask him for wisdom. And God, who gives generously without reproach, will give to you. And then get back on your feet, like Adam did after he received his curse. Get back on your feet, and by your works, show your faith in the power of God's promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. God, the end of this letter calls us to pray. It's a recognition that all these things that James brought to us, that we are unable to do them. That we are insufficient of ourselves. We are not smart enough. We are not healthy enough. We are not powerful enough or rich enough to accomplish any of these things. We are not faithful enough. But when we get on our face and we hear your words and we trust that you are able and willing and we look up to the heavens, we see you smiling and sending your spirit to help us. God, unify us as a church. Tame our tongues by your spirit. Wash us clean by the blood of Jesus. And make our faith work. That this city, that this country, that this world would see your people representing the life and death and resurrection of Jesus by our faith. In the power and the majesty, and the glory, and the strength of his great name. Amen.